0: Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, so glad that you are with us. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. It's towards the end of your Bible, not towards the end, is at the end. If you need a Bible, grab one on the way out today. We have the words on the screen here for you, your, your mobile device, what have you. As you're turning there, let me just um, kind of forecast where we are on our preaching series. In two weeks we are going to be back preaching through the book of Genesis. So uh, as a reminder, we we started that back in the spring. We're up to chapter 6, and we'll be heading back into the book of Genesis here in a couple of weeks. But we've taken a break this summer from Genesis to look at the seven churches of Revelation. And you know, Revelation is a book we often avoid because we turn to it pretending like we're Nostradamus or Sherlock Holmes or something like that and we're trying to discover all the secrets of the end of human history and we walk away frustrated. And one of the reasons that happens is that we fundamentally forget what Revelation actually is. Remember, Revelation is first and foremost a letter. It's a letter written by Jesus to the seven churches Of Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. He's given through the Apostle John. And this is a letter fundamentally to real people living in real cities, in real places with real struggles, with real needs. And Jesus, first and foremost, has a word for them. He wants to speak into their struggles, He wants to speak into their suffering. And and as he does so, there, there's a massive assumption that that Jesus is making about you and me here, two thousand years later, as we are reading this letter. And it's a it's 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 so obvious that sometimes we can just run right past it and forget this particular assumption. And, and here it is: and let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's that as Christians. We too, just like these seven churches 2,000 years ago, we too are a part of a visible community of believers in a particular geographical location that we call the local church, that we are a people that are to be marked by gathering together, worshiping together, serving together, praying together, giving together, sitting under teaching together, singing together. And a valid question, and I'll only ask it halfway tongue-in-cheek, it's simply this. If Jesus were to write a letter like this to the church in North Florida, and let's just think about who that might be, all right? Tallahassee, of course, Jacksonville, Pensacola, Panama City, Destined, Will Peters, Marianna makes the list. Lake City, Brian Moultrie does not make the list, sorry. If Jesus were to write such a letter, as this, would anyone in the 21st century church actually be around to hear it? Or would we be traveling? Or would we be communing with God on the hiking trail or on the golf course? Maybe we're growing down with, with, our, with our community at Starbucks. Maybe we were doing virtual church with our PJs on, which is nice and super convenient. But here's the thing, church. Jesus has, in fact, written us a letter. It's right here. And he calls us as a community of believers in a particular time and place to study God's word together. Eugene Peterson, who is now with the Lord, was a pastor, um, wrote a ton of great books. I love this quote that he has in his, his book, Reverse Thunder, about community in the church. He says this. It is assumed that revelation will be read and heard in church. That individuals would take the scroll and go off to read it in the privacy of their own rooms is not for a moment imagined. Attention to the gospel message is always an act of community, never an exercise in private. A believing community is the context for the life of faith. The gospel pulls us into community. One of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. Now, here's a question for us as this series draws to a close over the next week or so, and we head at full steam ahead right into the fall. Here's the question. What would it take for you? What would it take for me? What would it take for us when it comes to our walk with Christ to transform the I and the my and the me of our spiritual lives into the we and the us and the our? Folks, I'm going to make an appeal to us this morning. And I make this appeal not because I'm a pastor and I think you should quote-unquote, come to church. I make this appeal because the reason I am a pastor is that I believe in this stuff. I believe in the centrality of the body of believers studying the Word of God, communing around the Word of God. Let me make an appeal. What would it take to run after the family of God this year? For, For the family of God, the local church, to be the hub of your spiritual life, what would it? What would that look like? What would that look like to make? And it doesn't have to be Four Oaks. You may be Pastor Paul. I don't like Four Oaks. Go find a church you like. Hey, that's not the point. The point is, do you have one? A family, a body of believers, people you can worship together, and serve, and give, and be generous, and have community, and all these things we've been talking to you about. In the fall, with reengage this and reboot that, and it, it's it's all for that purpose that you would find life in the family of God, because we need each other. And 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 Jesus takes his time a turn here. Isn't it interesting? The very last book of the Bible, seven churches. It's, it's it's symbolic in so many ways. It means completeness. It means it's to the church all time. Jesus wants. To give us a word as the people of God, not merely as individuals. See, at the church in Philadelphia, all, and very much like us, they were a discouraged group. They were a, a spiritual minority. They were being pressed in from, from both the cultural elites and the religious elites. They were, they were out of step. There there was constant pushback against their faith. And they needed to hear a word as the people of God. And this is what Jesus gives them. It's what he gives us here today, 2,000 years later. So we're going to be in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7 this morning, the church in Philadelphia. I'm going to invite you to stand, if you can, willing, able. We're going to read God's word together. Jesus is speaking and he says and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens I know your works behold I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're now asking you, I'm asking you to do what only you can do and that's to write this word on our hearts. Lord, your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we we need you to speak into our lives. We are just like the the churches in Smyrna and Laodicea and Philadelphia and Ephesus. Lord, we're, we're we're like all of them. We we need your encouragement, we need your correction. Most of all, we need you. And so, Lord, bless that as we unpack it today, this word to us. In your name we pray. Amen. may be seated. They called Philadelphia, at the time, Little Athens. Not a restaurant, okay, but Little Athens. It was a cultural hub, believe it or not. It was actually called the Gateway to the East, so if you look on a map... And the trade routes that went from east to west across Asia Minor and then into Greece and um, to the Orient, they all ran right through Philadelphia. And so, it, as you can imagine, it attracted a number of cultural elites. It was a wealthy town. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was a cosmopolitan town. It was sophisticated there was, a, there was a certain air about things. It was the place to be. And like all places like that, and, and 21st century America is very much this, there was immense pressure to adopt the worldly values of the city. This was sometimes like overt pressure. And we've talked about this like with the trade guilds you couldn't buy and sell unless you were worshiping gods and practicing sexual immorality. Sometimes it was just more implicit Like the air that you breathe, that was just always around you. In fact, we saw it this week, didn't we? For all of you old Saved by the Bell fans, A.C. Slater, a.k.a. Mario Lopez, um, Hollywood actor, was being interviewed. And he had the audacity to say that he didn't think three-year-olds were necessarily in best position to determine their own gender at that age. And you would have thought that he had advocated cannibalism, right? Um, I mean, social media was on fire. Um, I'm I'm surprised Mario himself didn't get set on fire. And what was interesting about all this cultural pressure that came to bear is that how quickly he walked it back, right? With the apology and the publicist statement and all those things because there's immense pressure, is there not? His, his livelihood, and I'm not picking on him, this is, this is something we all feel, we all wrestle with. This was the situation with the church in Philadelphia. Now, what was interesting about this church is not only were they being persecuted by the cultural elites, they were also being persecuted by the religious elites, as is sometimes in the case in big cities, there was a there was a huge class, uh, a Jewish population with a synagogue that was right there. And here come these strange Christians professing strange things and eating the body and blood of Christ. And of course, this was blasphemy. This was something to be squashed at all opportunity. And so they were kicked out, ostracized. These Jewish, some of these Jewish Christians from the synagogue, and they were they were they were getting it from both sides. And so when Jesus tells them in verse 8, look there, he reminds them that they have little power. Little power. Literally, they were weak. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Now, when when, when Jesus tells them that they are weak, he's not talking about spiritually speaking. In fact, we see over and over he commends them for keeping his word for patiently enduring, for being faithful. Do you know this is only one of two churches in in the book of Revelation where no correction is given because no correction is needed? Can you imagine? Jesus wanted to commend them for their faithfulness. So when he says that they are weak, what he means is that they were small. They didn't have a ton of resources, they didn't have this huge platform for ministry. There was not a lot of standing in the culture. There was they didn't exert outwardly speaking a lot of influence. To put it in contemporary terms, in all of the societal institutions that we think even as Christians that we think are indispensable to influence. Let's think about it. We think politics is, oh my goodness, Whoever resides in the White House, or the Congress, that, that determines the fate of the kingdom of God. Or academia, man, if we, just, if we just seize control once again, from whom and from what, not sure. But, you know, it, it would all be good. Science, sports, media, entertainment, all the things that we think from a, from a worldly perspective are hugely important for the Christian faith. Jesus says the church at Philadelphia has none of those. You're weak. And when they hear this, they, they know exactly what he's talking about. And the reason that Jesus doesn't mention all of these things that we think are so important for standing and for power is that he knows that's not what the church in Philadelphia needs. And folks, it's not what we need. What we need is a fresh vision of Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants to provide. And there's, there's three things that Jesus is going to point out about himself that were hugely important for the church in Philadelphia, hugely important for us as a group of people who are wanting to, to be like this church. Guys, don't you want to hold fast? Don't you want to be faithful? Don't you want to be fruitful in, in ministry? Don't you want to glorify Christ? In all that you do, I do, because I believe Jesus is, is one day going to ask us to all give an account, not just as individuals, but, hold on, as a church. Poor Oaks, what kind of witness were you for me in August, whatever date this is, 4th? Did I just guess that right? August, thank you. Somebody on the front row is like, yes, pastor, you should know this. August 4th of 2019. So three things about Jesus we need to see. Number one, Jesus wants to see himself, for us to see him as king. Okay, so look at verse seven. This is interesting language. Now remember the pattern that Jesus uses here to these seven churches. Jesus reveals a part of who he is, his character, to these seven churches depending upon what they needed to hear. So sometimes Jesus is you know, carrying the sword, and he is coming to kick butt and take names. You know, sometimes Jesus is speaking a word of rebuke. But here, interestingly, Jesus first identifies himself as the one who is holy and true. Now, what's significant about that is that he's clearly playing off of Isaiah chapter 6. Now, remember what Isaiah 6 shows us. Isaiah is transported, the prophet is transported to the throne room of God. And and he says he sees God high and lifted up, seated on the throne. The seraphim are are, are singing day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when Isaiah sees God, he does what we would do if God showed up, in a sense. We would go low. (laughs) We would be chewing the carpet. We would be like prostate before him. And this is what Isaiah does but What's interesting about this vision is that when we get to Revelation chapter 4, we, we, we won't get to it in our study, but when you read Revelation, you get to chapter 4, this very same image is given to us of God on his throne, the seraphim singing, holy, 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 all the elders and the apostles bowing down before Jesus, but what we find out is who it is that's really on the throne. Do you know who it is? It's Jesus. The vision that Isaiah saw on the throne was Jesus. The vision that John sees in Revelation 4 is Jesus. And and, and the, and the imagery is not, it's not a mystery here. Jesus wants to remind them, he wants to remind us, regardless of whatever else is happening in the kingdoms of the world out there, be rest assured that I am reigning on my throne. I am sovereign I'm in control. Nothing surprises me. I didn't doze off in the middle of the night and like miss my watch. All the things that are happening, both good and bad, didn't take me by surprise. We wake up on a morning like this and hear not just about one mass shooting, but two. One in El Paso, a second in Dayton, early this morning. And, 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 The world feels out of control. It feels full of evil. And Jesus wants to remind us, I am firmly in charge. I am firmly reigning over the affairs of man. You can can turn to me. You can come to me because this is not out of my... Control. Look, look, look back at the passage. He goes on to say that he is the key of David. He's a key that opens and no one shuts. Now, no, what is that about? Again, you can tell John is just. I mean, think about this, guys. When you read Revelation, there are literally hundreds of references to the Old Testament. Hundreds. And Isaiah is one of of one of John Jesus's favorite books to quote from. And so, so this is actually a quote from Isaiah twenty two. Let me read it, and then. We'll talk about why he uses this imagery, the key of David that opens and no one shuts. So it says In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now here's the key verse. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Eliakim was the chief steward of the king's household. That would be King Hezekiah. And as the steward, he was was authorized to execute the full administrative authority in the king's name. In other words, whatever he said, it was as if Hezekiah was saying it. He was entrusted with the full authority of the kingdom of Judah. Figuratively, this full set of keys, which means that he had access to everything. If you wanted to go through him, you had to get access. That means he had power. That means he had control. And interestingly, Jesus says, really, that passage is about me. If you were to ask me who is the most powerful person at Four Oaks, I wouldn't even hesitate. Wouldn't even blink an eye and tell you. Well, that's clearly Kirk Tanis, our facilities manager, right? Why? Well, because Kirk has the key to everything. He's got keys to places we know not of as a staff team. we'll, We'll just be rummaging around because we. That's what we do as a staff and looking in here and looking in there, I wonder what's what's there. We can't get into it. And the reason we can't get into it is that Kirk doesn't want us to get into it, okay? Because he knows we'll mess it up. He knows we'll screw something up, we'll reset the internet, we'll I mean, Kirk is no fool. And so we constantly find ourselves coming to Kirk and saying, Kirk, can you get us into there? Kirk, can you push that button? Kirk, can you fix this thing? Can you do that? because he's the administrative authority. He's the one by which we go through to get access. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, by virtue of the fact that I died and I've risen from the grave, I'm the rightful heir of David. My people have been waiting thousands of years for the rightful heir. They thought it was going to be David. They thought it was going to be Abraham. They thought it was going to be Noah. They thought it was going to be Adam. They thought it was going to be Elijah. It wasn't any of them. It was me. And the reason I'm authorized to make this claim of authority is because not only have I died, but I have risen again. And now I'm not just David's son, but in fact, I am David's Lord. So you can trust me you can be rest assured that I have absolute power over everything. I am giving access in me, through me alone to the kingdom of God. And what's interesting about this is that he says that this door to the kingdom is wide open, by the way. It's open to anyone, open to anyone, not discriminating at all, just come and bow your knee to the king. Just place your faith and your trust in me. And guys, this would have been so, so comforting, I think, to the church in Philadelphia. Because were they not being assaulted on both sides and all around by the kingdoms of the world that seem so powerful? And they are powerful. Because let's not play around. Principalities, darkness, evil, evil satanic influences. These are all very real things in our world. But, but Jesus wants to remind us of something. Psalm 2.2. David, interestingly, wrote this. He said this, the kings of the earth say to themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cord from us. Doesn't it feel like that so many times? People just casting away any restraint, any authority from the God of this universe. Jesus is not troubled. What does it say here? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I've asked you this kind of question before. I want want to come back to it. But where in your life today do you need a fresh vision of Jesus on his throne. Do you do you realize that Jesus is on the throne in your marriage or your ministry or with your kids? Do you know that Jesus is on the throne in your business? With your roommates, with that class you're taking at FSU or FAMU or TCC? Do you know that Jesus is on the throne in your body which even now is betraying you? Where do you need a fresh vision of the reign of Jesus? The church in Philadelphia needed it. We need it. So the first thing that Jesus reveals himself as is king. The second thing he reveals himself as is the temple. Now look, look at verse 9 and I want to kind of unpack this and walk through it. In verse 9 Jesus says behold I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Now Little little backdrop here. So, you have Old Testament Jews who were worshiping God, and they would worship in the synagogue when they were away from Jerusalem. If you're in Jerusalem, you worshiped at the temple. And we know that the temple, the synagogue, was the center of religious life, it was where the very presence of God resided. And and that's why Gentiles could not come into the temple or the synagogue. Only the people of God. God's chosen people, the Jews. Well, when when Jesus shows up, and this was actually not new, it was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, but when Jesus shows up, he says, no, 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 no. It's not based upon ethnicity or or socioeconomic status or where you know, who your daddy was or who your mama was or what church you grew up in, none of that determines citizenship in the kingdom of God. Citizenship is determined by faith in me. So if you're, if you're calling yourself a Jew, God's chosen person, the only chosen people now are those who are found in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul calls us the children of Abraham. Remember that song you did? I did, little Father Abraham. Okay, it's like, but he's not my father. Yes, he is spiritually. And so, and so these people who are saying, we're the real people of God, we're the real Jews, and Jesus is like, no, no, no. No. You belong to me if you've come through my door. If you're part of my family, if you've placed your faith in me. Now, when this happens, now this, is what's, this is what's cool. He says, you don't need the temple anymore. You don't need the synagogue. See, to be cast out of the synagogue in the Jewish tradition, that's like excommunication. That's like you don't get the invite to the family Thanksgiving. I mean, that, that's the whole kit and caboodle. You are set outside the camp. You are wandering in the wilderness. You are set outside the people of God. And Jesus says, wrong category. Because if you know me, guess what? You don't need the temple. And the reason why is because I am the temple. I am the very presence of God. Look, Revelation 21 22 says this, and this is a consistent theme all throughout scripture in the New Testament where, G, where Jesus says, or Paul says, we don't worship God in a building made with hands anymore. As if there is some magical mojo being here in this particular building. Goodness sake, you're worshiping in a former meat market, right? Okay. When you leave today, the Holy Spirit goes with you. Okay. This is not a sacred space. I'm going to maybe step on toes. There's no such thing anymore. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm the temple. Now l- l- listen to Revelation twenty-one, twenty two. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And because of this, wherever God's people are, his spirit resides. That's why Jesus says, there'll be coming a day where you will not worship me here or in Jerusalem any longer. You're going to worship me in spirit and in truth. And so he's reminding them, he's reminding you, you think God's presence is far from you because you've, you've got this obstacle or this stumbling block, or you've been put outside this synagogue or this place. He's telling them, no, 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 you have me because my spirit resides in you. Do you realize whatever you perceive as separating you, quote unquote, from Jesus Christ right now is a figment of your imagination. Oh, oh, granted, I, I know there's there's sin, I know there's things disrupting your communion, your fellowship, but I'm talking about a theological reality. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to think about this promise from verse 12. This is an amazing promise. He says, I will make you church as a pillar in my temple. See, in that particular day and age, this area of Asia Minor was incredibly prone to earthquakes. And in fact, Philadelphia itself had been utterly destroyed about 60, 70 years prior to this. This is a time when people in the city would have seen the great Parthenons, the great temples come tumbling down, the pillars falling on top of one another, and they were constantly living in that sort of fear. And Jesus is reminding them, you may think that describes your spiritual situation, that everything around you is uncertain, everything around you is unstable, but I want to remind you, people of God, I want to remind you, Four Oaks, that because of your union with me, I'm building you into my temple. You are now a pillar you're, you're not the roof, you're not the weather vane, you're a pillar in me, in my body. And, and here's the significance of being a pillar. A pillar is always attached to what? The foundation of whom Jesus Christ says, I am the chief cornerstone. This is all a way of painting a picture for them to remember nothing, nothing, nothing can take you, snatch you out of my house, out of my presence, out of my body. Not only that, look back in the text, it says, I've also given you a name. I want you to think about something for a second. What are the things in your life that you've given a personal name to? Okay, a pet, of course, maybe a stuffed animal, if you will admit it, maybe a car. Some of you have some nicknames for cars. Okay. Some of you family members have nicknames for each other that I don't want to hear about in public. I don't, I, don't, I, don't want to know. I don't want to know. Don't ask me. I won't ask you. But typically, we give things names that are important to us, don't we? That have some sort of meaning, that have some sort of significance. And Jesus says, you're not just some nameless pillar in my house. And you always kind of think about that like in heaven. This is, it's going to be weird. Am I, do I have to stand in line to see Jesus? You know, like do I get time with him or is he like going to be so busy? He says, no, 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 no. I don't know how this works, but I have a personal name for you. I intimately know you. I'm building you into my city. And as, by virtue of that, you have all the rights and privileges granted therein. You're not just a guest in my temple. Jesus says, you're a part of my family, of which the local church is just a picture of that family in this life. So once again, I ask you, where in your life do you feel like there is just impending uncertainty, impending catastrophe, that, that, that you're literally undergoing an earthquake That maybe the thing that you've spent your whole life building, like maybe literally, is up in smoke. Or your business. Or your family. Jesus wants to remind us that we are a part of his eternal home, a part of his eternal presence. Where do you need to be reminded of that this morning? Last, and we're going to go through this one a little quicker, Jesus wants to reveal himself to us as Savior. Now, look, look at verse 8. This is interesting language. He says, I have set before you. Now, this is to the church in Philadelphia. Remember, this is tiny, puny, weak little church in Philadelphia. And Jesus says, I have set before you an open door. Now, where else in the New Testament have we heard that sort of language before? Paul actually used it all the time. For example, Colossians 4.3, he says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. Paul's, Paul talks about this all the time, this open door, and it's this idea that God has supernaturally, providentially gone before his people and have opened doors for witness and ministry to them. Now, when we think about this week, church, let's, let's be honest, This is completely antithetical to the way we as Americans think. We think strength. And when we have strength and control and power, that's when we take advantage of opportunity. See, the kingdom of God, though, for Oaks, turns all of that upside down. Because we have to say, how how does a church with so little power have such great witness and opportunity? And it's because they possessed Jesus' power. And how does Jesus' power come to us? Paul makes this clear over and over again. And this is such a hard lesson for us, right? It's not when you were strong, you were strong. Or when you were powerful, you have a witness. He says, but when you are what? Weak. See, this little struggling church by the fact that it was holding on, by the fact that it was faithful, by the fact that it, not perfect, but that, the fact that it had its eyes set on Christ, was absolutely befuddling to the community around them. It was absolutely befuddling because how could this small, insignificant church have such a witness for ministry? And we know they had a witness for ministry in all these churches because we see how the kingdom of God spread out all across the Roman Empire and this was the case over and over again insignificant little bodies of believers did not have any of the social standing we think is so important and it's simply abiding by a principle that's embedded in the values of the kingdom see we don't win the world by being cool and hip and culturally savvy The world can find those in spades out there. The world is not impressed by that. What the world is impressed with, I can use that word, is that when we are confessing our sins and we are holding up our brokenness and we are holding on to Jesus Christ despite all the losses in our life and by virtue of the fact that we are holding on to them, they see ah. Yes, they value Jesus more than life itself. And if they value Jesus more than life itself, there is absolutely something clearly unique and powerful about him. It's what Martin Luther says. You want, you want, you want the power of God in your life? Embrace the gospel. He said, it is the gospel that is the power to change lives. Rose, it seems antithetical even in your midst of whatever you're going through right now in, in, in your low place to say, what door of opportunity has God given me? The question is not, has God given you a door of opportunity? The question is, what is it? Are you willing and we willing as a church to walk through it? I had some folks over for dinner last night and we pretended like it was New Year's Eve and we did the whole hey, what do you want to see God do in the coming year? But we kind of changed it to the school year. You see how we did that? See what we did there? So, so we, we, we said, first of all, reflect back on the last year. Where have you seen God's faithfulness? Where have you seen God bless? And then this coming school year, where do you want to see God work? What, what, what are your dreams, your gospel dreams, your hopes? And I think that God has put this before us, for Oaks, in this season, to say, he's given us a door of opportunity. I don't know what that is specifically for you, but I know it's there. I know it's there for us as a church. And it doesn't happen by being the biggest, the baddest, the most powerful, the most influential, the most savvy. It just means we love Jesus more than we love the stuff that this life offers and when we do that, Jesus says, that's real power. That's my power. That's when people see me. The risen Savior who went and died on a cross, the, 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 the supreme act of weakness, so that being raised from the dead, his power could be made known and lived out in us. Do you know this, Jesus? Folks, let's follow this Jesus, wherever he leads, and ask him to make us a witness to walk through the door and the doors that God has given us this year. Let's pray.